Welcome to season two of the Pines and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. This show understands that there is quite a bit of diversity amongst the body of Christ. So we operate according to the motto that certain things are fixed, like the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. What's cracking, beer lovers? What's up, friends? How are we doing? Hope everyone is doing well. We are going to drink some more beer and talk some more theology, and hopefully I enjoy this beer more than the one I had last week. <laughs> it was so funny. It was so bad. Um, yeah, it was not good. Um, Cullen tried it off camera, and he goes, yeah, I would have given that a zero too. <laughs> I would have given that a zero too. It was bad. It was so not good. And then a friend of mine went and bought a uh, variety pack of Shiner, and it had six of them in it. Oh, no. Or No, it was four of them. Four of them of the Aqua Fresca. And I was like, I hope you like that beer because I think it's terrible. Um, I'll never drink it. I will never drink that beer again. Um, but I'm way more excited about this one. But let's talk about yours first. Okay, so this is a brew from Martin House. If you've been around here long, you know that we... Really enjoy we Martin adore House. Martin House. Um, this is their raspberry sour ale. Um, it's called the True Love, and it's five point two percent ABV. All right. Not really any other information about it on the can, um, and I didn't look it up. Yeah, um, I didn't look mine up either. Um, but I also have some Martin House. Um, it is their pina colada coconut cream ale with pineapple. I love pina coladas and painkillers. Um, painkillers, the drink, the cocktail. Yeah. Not, <laughs> yeah. not like, yeah, yeah, yeah. not yeah, actually, not actual Clayton pain not over here popping pain pills. <laughs> just to clarify. <laughs> no, painkiller is a deconstructed pina colada. It's just yeah. not blended. It's shaken together and served over crushed ice. Yep. Um, and that, is, that arguably might be my favorite summertime cocktail um, or tiki-adjacent cocktail. Um, so I'm excited about this. It's 5.4%. Um, it's got a flamingo on it, which I think is cool. A flamingo floaty. I was going to say, it's a yeah. floaty. Don't yeah. miss that it's a floaty. It's a flamingo floaty. Yeah. Uh, our cans actually look really similar, too. They do. They have a the similar color scheme. Water, pink. Uh, yeah. I've got a flamingo, and you've got, what is that? Um, some kind of woman. She looks like a 1950s housewife, which I'm not real sure about. Uh, doesn't she? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, she looks like a 1950s housewife. I don't know. I'm excited. You Cheers. excited? Cheers. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh. Yep. There's the coconut. Nope. Ooh. You don't like it, do you? Clayton's got that look. He's got the eye of him. He's it got tastes it. like suntan lotion. Suntan <laughs> <laughs> lotion. Is that what you really said? First of all, how do you know what suntan lotion tastes you like? You know when you're like putting it on your face? No, you no, no, I don't know. Um, that's not good. 
<laughs> Give me uh, a score, bro. Uh, three and a half. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> that, that reminded me of the longest yard when they're doing the tryouts and Brucey falls on the tires and he goes a three and he goes he pulls his helmet off and he looks at him and he goes half and he goes that's better that's better. That's better. <laughs> No, I shouldn't have ate that popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so I feel about the way, about this beer, I feel about the same way about Malibu. <coughs> the the coconut rum. <laughs> yeah. Um, Why are you comparing those? They taste so similar. <laughs> I'm dead, bro. It's... <laughs> So you think Malibu tastes like suntan lotion? <laughs> I really do. I'm sorry. No shade to anyone who likes Malibu. No shade to Martin House. I literally just said I adore you. Yeah. <laughs> no shame. Um, if you like Malibu, you'd probably like this beer. <laughs> I think it tastes like suntan lotion. <laughs> I really don't want to drink it. Oh, my stomach hurts. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it's hilarious. Okay. Mine, um, the raspberry sour ale. Bro, I'm crying. <laughs> I'm laughing so hard. <laughs> um, it's good. Um, I think, Martin, I was like, I adore you. <laughs> I think it's really good. Um, the raspberry doesn't taste artificial at all. It definitely feels like it was an adjunct ingredient. The sour, I mean, it tastes like a sour. It's real crisp. It's real carbonated. It's real refreshing. The raspberry has like a great balance to it. And a lot of sours that have adjuncts, the adjunct either hits you right on the front or right mm. at the back. There's no, like, follow-through throughout the palate development and the flavor. Typically, yeah. Uh, that is not the case for this. That's why I say it's not an artificial flavor. It's definitely an adjuncted flavor because that raspberry hits you all the way through, and it's probably most prominent in the mid-palate, mm. which is rare. Um, I think it's really good, um, and I tend to like sours, especially in the summer. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I think it's at least a 7.6. Good. Yeah, it's a good beer. So while you start talking about the church, I'm going to go find something else to drink. <laughs> so funny. I think it's hilarious. Um. Okay, yeah. So today we're starting a new element of our series that we're calling, that is through Engaging Theology by Ben Blackwell and Randy Hatchett. And... Their book is called Engaging Theology, and the next chapter that we're going to look at is on the church. So the ecclesial, like the big theological word for this is, excuse me, ecclesiology, the study of the ecclesia, the church, the gathering, the assembly of people. Ecclesia is a Greek word that just means assembly uh, or congregation of people. It was actually a political word first used in the Greek language around the time of like 
Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, look yeah. around those guys. And so the the word was it just means assembly. It just means gathering of people. Yeah. But the church starts using it to refer to itself, to refer to its own gathering, if you get what I'm saying. And Ben and Randy begin by talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Clayton, who is Dietrich Bonhoeffer? I actually don't know. I mean, I know I've heard the name, but I couldn't um, give you a history or anything. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor born around the turn of the century, around, I think it's 1905, 1906, something like that. I know it's around the turn of the century. Uh, let me look it up. Yeah, 1906. Um, <clears throat> and he ends up becoming a very well-known theologian. He ends up becoming very well-known. He ends up going and spending some time at Union Theological in New York. He spends some time studying at university in Europe. And he ends up getting, he ends up writing a very famous book. It's actually his dissertation for his doctoral work. And it's, it's just the German version anyway. It's just called Discipleship. The <clears throat> kind of summarized and repackaged version of that book is the best-selling book, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And it's important to understand who he is and why it matters for the church because he's a German. He's also a pacifist. And he is born at the turn of the century in the 1900s. And he dies in 1945. Clayton, what major conflict is going on towards the end or towards during his adult life up until his death? World War II. World War II. And um, <clears throat> old Dietrich was not really a fan of Hitler. No. Uh, rumor has it that he was actually involved in an assassination attempt mm. on Hitler well, as a pacifist. Now, there are different people, let's just say, people have said to different levels of how involved Dietrich was in the whole thing. But the reason that Ben and Randy want to use Dietrich as their kind of case study for a conversation about ecclesiology is because Dietrich believed that the church was a place of justice and liberation. Yeah. Now he also thought that like the church was theologically weak, that mm -hmm. that that the church needed to be theologically educated and trained in a way, but <clears throat> not in the way that like necessarily Germans were thinking about it because he comes over to America and one of his best friends here in America is black. And so he gets to sit in 1940 with a black dude in New York. Yeah. Gets to witness racism firsthand, being denied service because he's with a black man. <clears throat> and from then on, he really begins to respect the social justice initiative of the American church. And he kind of meshes these two things together on, under this thing that he calls the cost of discipleship. And the way in which he does it is he just interprets the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is just a simple teaching by Jesus about what it means to be a Christian. Yep. So all the Sermon on the Mount is to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
And so, Dietrich set up the church as the counter-narrative to nationalism. Okay? Hear me say that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer thought the church needed to be the opposite, like the opposite expression of nationalism. Yeah. Clayton, what do we spend so much time speaking against here in America? Christian nationalism? Mm -hmm. Okay. That's not the church. The church's job is not to promote America first. Mm -hmm. The church's job is not to be um, a people who say America is God's country. Mm. That's not the church's job. The church's job is to be a people of liberation in the name of Jesus, the message of the good news. And so how do you do this? What What does it look like to be the church and be a part of this message of the good news? Well, as we talked about earlier, it begins... With a family. You can't miss that first and foremost, the church is birthed out of the covenant with Abraham. Mm -hmm. The covenant of Abraham is a familial covenant. A familial covenant that says you and everyone from you is family. Some would say it, blood's thicker than water, you know, however you do it. Some say family and friends, you know, however you do it. I think most people understand that family holds a different level of relational bondage than friendship does. I would certainly hold that. Now, what I say all the time is family's a privilege, not a right. Mm-hmm. You don't get to just like you're not just family because we share a bloodline. You family because you're invested in mine and our lives, right? Yep. Family's a privilege, not a right. But if I call you family, I'm definitely invested in you in a different level than I am if I just call you friend, mm-hmm. right? And so I personally think there's a beauty in saying that the church is a family. Yeah, that the that the people the gathering are a family. However, family is not the only metaphor through which you can look at it. Um, And we're going to look at a few more in just a second. But one of the things that I want you to notice is that the church... The church has a job to pursue life and liberation Mm -hmm. and to offer that life and liberation for all people. So that means that the mission of the church, if you were going to define or if you were going to gloss the mission of the church, it is my belief that you could summarize the mission of the church under the term human flourishing Mm -hmm. that the church must be the place that people experience human flourishing and if people are going to flourish 
then that means that the church has to do things in order for people to flourish. Meaning, what, Clayton? What does the church have to do in order to provide a space for people to flourish? Provide an open... An open space where people can be themselves and not feel judged and be loved. Okay, so a safe, safe space? Yeah. Safe space. I think that's the number one most important thing. You know, I have a friend, one of my best friends. um, She's queer. She used to be a Christian. We have the same undergraduate degree. We went to college together. Um she no longer identifies as a Christian. Uh, I still love her. I don't, honestly, I don't really care that she mm-hmm. doesn't identify as a Christian. Um, One of my best friends doesn't identify as a Christian either. Yeah. It, <clears throat> I don't remember why I was going there. A Christian oh, national. Um, no. No. Uh, one of my friends is queer and she no longer identifies as a Christian anymore. And one of the things I always hear her say is, and one of the reasons she keeps me around, she'll tell you this if you ask her, um, she'll say, I never thought someone that works as a pastor would ever continue to be a part of my life. Um, But because I'm viewing things a little bit different, she keeps me around because I'm not a predator. I'm not an oppressor. I'm not doing any of those things. But one of the things I always hear her say is that she believes there should be safe spaces for queer people in any venue or industry. Agreed. There should always and everywhere be safe spaces for queer people. What I might challenge our listeners to is to say that the church should be the safe space for any other of society. Mm. Yep. Anyone, the church should be that safe space. If the church is not a safe space, we've missed our calling. You can't be committed to human flourishing if you're simultaneously trying to figure out how to oppress people. Mm. Can't be committed to human flourishing if you're simultaneously worried about all the other things that the church has become worried about, like power, mm-hmm. right? The church began, the ecclesia began as a group of persecuted people. Mm-hmm. It can't be a people of power. Yeah, it's like against the it's against the whole port. If if the church becomes about power, it no longer becomes about human flourishing. Mm-hmm. That's problematic. And there is an element. So, if I can speak a little bit freely on this, yeah. there is an element of of conservative theology that does minimize human flourishing at points. Um, Give me an example. Um, conservative theology being, being that sexual same sexual relation to sin. Um, like, cool, we could have that conversation until the cows come home. You are not letting a person flourish. Yeah. Right. Um but there is also ways to do conservative theology, like we were talking about off-camera right before we started about the Presbyterians. Oh, yeah. Um, very conservative in their Reformed theology, 
Yeah. But also very socially like liberal and accepting and allowing for human flourishing. Yeah. Um, there are ways to do both of these things. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Um, <coughs> so if the church's job is to <coughs> promote human flourishing, then we should, excuse me, talk about five metaphors of the church that promote human flourishing. One of them, as we've talked about, is the church as family. We did that through Abraham. But Ben and Randy point out another one, and I want I do also want to point this out. <clears throat> That the church is the bride of Christ. That's a that's a that's a, a Pauline metaphor. I don't really love it, but at the same point, I don't hate it. That metaphor of the bride of Christ. I think it's limiting. I certainly don't think it should be your primary metaphor. However, There is something quite beautiful about that metaphor. If you really think about what it is to be a bride, what it would mean for God to be the groom, to what that marriage ceremony would look like, and the feast that would happen afterwards, like to an ancient culture, that's a very beautiful metaphor. It's not a great metaphor for me, um, but I will tell you the part of it that I do love is that the church is the woman. No. The church is the she. Um it it is if nothing else synchronous the next metaphor that they want to talk about is the church as flock clayton do you want to like summarize this metaphor metaphorical concept jesus is the shepherd and we are the sheep yeah or the pastor is the shepherd mm. and the people are the sheep one of those kinds of things um it's a very common metaphor, right? Jesus, leave the 99, go after the one. You know, Psalm 23, he leads me by, by still waters. There's all kinds of flock and uh, flock metaphors for the congregation. The church as the temple. This is an interesting one because the temple is the place that housed God. Right? That was the whole purpose, is that God needed a house. Right. Well, now, that, that metaphorical construct of God being in a house has been morphed, transitioned, into this new one that says, God doesn't need a house. You are God's house that you, the community, are the temple in which God is choosing to dwell. Now, that metaphor has like additional caveats on it. That is to say that if God is the temple, then holiness is a requirement of that metaphor as well because God's temple must be holy. Mm -hmm. You understand? Mm -hmm. I'm pointing all of these out because whichever one that you use as your primary kind of foundational ecclesiology, that'll dictate how you do everything else. It'll dictate how you, pra uh, how you practice and actually do your things. The church has body. This is a, a great metaphor from 1 Corinthians 12. 
And what it comes down to is it, it values the diversity of the people and the instruments in the ecclesia. The body's made up of a head, eyes, nose, ears, mouth, you know, chest, arms, feet, toes, made up of a lot of different parts. If every part of a human, Clayton, if every part of you, every expendable part, right, mm-hmm. was replaced with a hand, mm-hmm. how valuable do you think you are? Like, how? I mean, beyond having human life. Um, right. Not really. Can't do much. Because in some metaphors, the beauty of the metaphor is in the diversity of the people in the metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. Or the characters in the metaphor. There's some real beauty in the diversity of the metaphorical construct of the church's body. Because what it shows is that as the church's body, they're all working together. Mm-hmm. They're all continuing to move in tandem with their diversity, with their own giftings, yeah. for a common goal, for a common purpose. <clears throat> and then number five, the church as city or kingdom. And I'm actually just going to read this one. Christians are not fundamentally identified with local or national identities among, according to human political maps. Rather, their ultimate citizenship is heavenly, with Christ as the king in the kingdom of God. As a result, believers are called to live as foreigners, strangers, and aliens among human kingdoms. As citizens of the heavenly state, Christians follow the wisdom of the leadership of elders who help guide and administer. Additionally, apostles help communicate God's kingdom realities to those outside the community of faith. The church as city or kingdom. This one I also really enjoy because of the call to live as a foreigner. Mm-hmm. It means that the call is to live as a marginalized and vulnerable person. Mm. It means it's not to pursue power. It's not to pursue significance. It's not to pursue the next step. It's not to try to get one over on somebody. Yeah. So... We got five main metaphors. There are some other metaphors of the church. Um, Clayton, which one do you think is your primary metaphor? I think elements of all of them for sure. Um, but I think the one that I I was raised with was church's family. Mm. Um, over time, I have added the elements of church's temple. Um, so church's family and church's body definitely both grew up with, but church's temple was added later on and church's flock is where I think I might be more now. Um, why church's flock? Um, I feel like I'm in a place in life where I need to be led more than to lead. Mm Um, and I'm needing the, the the divine leadership more than ever, yeah. um, and so that might be where I'm at more now than than anything. Got it. Does it make sense? Yeah, for sure. And I think I think the beauty of this is is I 100% get exactly where you are and why you've chosen the metaphor you've chosen. Yeah. However, that's not the metaphor I'm choosing. Right. I'm choosing the church's body. 
That one is and forever will be one of the best metaphors that I think the church has ever come up with for itself because the other truth that the church's body embodies the church's body also embodies the truth that the image of God is housed in the body. Um, There's other metaphorical layers that I think make it a more beautiful foundational metaphor. For me, as a person who's got a lot of religious trauma from people telling me what I didn't need to hear about the Bible... Mm. um, the church's flock actually is not a great metaphor for me. It's actually yeah. my least favorite metaphor because it has a singular leader leading a plethora of people behind them. Sure. Now, that's not to say that there aren't times where that's needed, right? Absolutely. Moses needed to lead the Israelites out of slavery and across the river and into or the, the Red Sea and to safety. Mm-hmm. But by and large, that's just not my favorite metaphor. I don't really like the idea of uh, a leader being the singular voice and how to accomplish something. I like mm. I like things working together in tandem and team for and sure. Community and and there is an element of that in, in my metaphor as well. Oh, of yeah, course, yeah, yeah, right. Like don't don't miss that. When I think about church as flock, I think about church as big capital C church being led by the good shepherd, Jesus. Got it. Well, that's not, that's not ecclesiology because churches are led by pastors. Even in Ben and Randy, they talk Mm. about the shepherd being the pastor, not Jesus. Understood. But cool. What I'm trying to, it is still ecclesiology because it's still the church. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, it is the large church in general, not individual churches. No, I get you. I, I don't want to look to you to make all of the decisions. Right, right. Right. And if, if I did, I would say there's a really unhealthy relationship here. Right. Um, what I am trying to say is that I need to be led by Jesus. And I think the church needs to lean more into the leadership of Jesus yeah. than each other. Yeah. Does that make sense? Do you hear me? I hear you. I can't decide if I agree with you or not. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, I probably don't I probably don't need to know if I agree with you or not. Yeah. I think the truth that we're trying to pull out of this is that just like in any of these things, there's a lot of different ways in which you can view this, and that's going to lead you to different places and different truths and different ways in which you live out those truths. But the heart of the matter, the foundational piece of it all, mm-hmm. is that the church is a community of people in pursuit of human flourishing in the name of the good news, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to the Pints and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. Be sure to give us a rating and a review if you enjoyed the episode. It's free and it helps us immensely. Also, feel free to check out our other podcasts.